Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. During Super Bowl 27, Dallas Cowboys defensive lineman Leon Lett committed one of the most infamous blunders in NFL history. After recovering a fumble by the offense, Lett had a clear path to the end zone. He picked up the ball, ran some 65 yards, and was about to score a touchdown on the biggest stage in American sports. But around the five-yard line, he slowed down and started celebrating. And mere inches before he crossed the goal line, Buffalo Bills wide receiver Don Beebe knocked the ball out of his hand. The touchdown was not counted. Buffalo got the ball back, and Leon Lett became a cautionary tale. Now, the Cowboys still went on to win that game, and Leon Lett had a very good NFL career. But to this day, he is remembered more for his fumble at the one-yard line than for anything else he did as a football player. What's the lesson? Don't drop the ball. Run hard to the very end. Don't celebrate too early. Finish strong. Well, in Hebrews 3 and 4, the author gives a similar warning to Christians. Don't drop the ball before you reach the end zone. Of course, we're not talking about a football game. We're talking about our lives as followers of Jesus. And in our case, the stakes are much higher than a touchdown, a trophy, or a ring. We're talking about eternal rest. And in the same way that Leon Lett's mistake has been used to warn and educate countless football players after him, believers like us can learn something from Israel's mistake in the Old Testament. So open up to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we go further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. I pray that you would watch over us as we worship you today. I pray that this time together would be beneficial for us, honoring to you. And Lord, I pray that we would not come here and do these things out of mere routine or familiarity, but we would have a continual and renewed sense of awe and wonder and joy and worship for you this Sunday and each and every Sunday that we gather. I also pray that our worship would extend beyond just Sunday morning. Help us live our entire lives before your face and glorify you in all the places that we go and and all the things that we do and all the things that we say. Lord, be with us as we attend to your word today. I pray that you would challenge us, encourage us, comfort us, give us good reminders of who you are, and who we are as a result of your grace. And Lord, by the power of your spirit, help us live out the identity that you have given us by faith in Christ. Again, we love you, we praise you, we glorify you. Thank you for this time we have together, this place and these people. For this morning and for 
32 years of Sunday mornings in the past. We thank you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, we read Hebrews chapter 1. And the message there was that Jesus is better than the angels because he is fully God. And then last week, we read Hebrews 2. The message there was that Jesus is better than the angels because he is fully human. In his divinity and his humanity, Jesus alone can make purification for our sins. He alone could taste death for everyone. And he alone could defeat sin, death, and the devil by offering himself up on the cross. So what must we do? Chapter 2 tells us. We must pay close attention to him. We must not drift away. Because the consequences for neglecting the salvation that someone as great as Jesus has accomplished for us, those consequences are certain. But with that, we pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's greater than angels. And he's greater than Moses. The letter to the Hebrews was written to a predominantly Jewish audience. And that means that those reading this letter or those hearing this sermon held Moses in high regard, to put it lightly. Some rabbis even spoke of Moses as a heavenly mediator. The Jewish author Philo once wrote that God gave Moses the whole world as a result of his faithfulness. And, you know, Moses really does deserve a lot of praise. He had quite the resume. He obeyed God's call at the burning bush. He returned to Egypt at great personal risk. He stared down the powerful Pharaoh and demanded that he let the enslaved Israelites go free. Moses was no slouch. He was a faithful servant. But as great as Moses was, Jesus is better. Jesus isn't just a servant. He's God's son. Jesus doesn't just serve in God's house. He stands over God's house. Moses deserves some honor, but Jesus deserves more. So what must we Christians do? Verse 6 tells us, 
hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Hold fast to Jesus, the one who is greater than Moses. Let's pick up in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Moses was a faithful servant, most of the time. But as for the other Israelites, well, let's just say that they don't deserve much glory. Verses 7 through 11 are a reference to Psalm 95. And this psalm recounts the troubled history of Israel while they were under Moses' leadership. God performed countless miracles through Moses to show Pharaoh, Egypt, and the Israelites that he meant business. Devastating plagues ravaged Egypt until Pharaoh finally, begrudgingly, agreed to let Israel go. God performed perhaps his most famous Old Testament miracle when he parted the Red Sea, allowing Israel to cross safely, but drowning the pursuing Egyptian army. God miraculously provided for Israel as they made their way through the wilderness. He gave them bread from heaven regularly, an all-you-can-eat buffet of quail and water from a rock. But then just when the Israelites were finally about to enter the promised land, after all those miracles, all that provision, all that protection that God gave them, they fell short. They were so close that they could smell it. But then on the one yard line, they dropped the ball. So the author of Hebrews and Psalm 95 hold up those Israelites from the past as a cautionary tale for Christians in the present. Why did all but two of them fail to enter the promised land? Why did they have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years? 
Why did they miss out on the rest that God offered them? Hebrews 3.12 Evil, unbelieving hearts. Verse 19 They missed out because of unbelief. Numbers 13 and 14 contains a truly tragic tale. People for whom God had done so much failed to believe to the end, and they suffered for it. They missed out on the rest that only God could offer. So Moses serves as a positive example. No, he wasn't perfect. He tried to worm his way out of his calling at the burning bush. He doubted God's plan after his first meeting with Pharaoh went poorly. And he didn't always obey in the wilderness. Not even Moses got to enter the promised land. But in the end, he is remembered as a faithful servant. And then we have the Israelites, who serve as a negative example. Only two people from that generation, Joshua and Caleb, the only ones who trusted God enough to take on those bullies in the promised land, ever got to experience that rest and reward. The message is clear. Don't be like those unfaithful Israelites. Don't drop the ball. Picking up in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward and the words already quoted today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So if we don't want to repeat the Israelites blunder, what should we do? The author gives us a few tips. First, consider Jesus. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Remember last week, chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. 
The author reminds us of who Jesus is. The one sent for our salvation. The one who offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for our deliverance. But he also reminds us of who we are by faith in Jesus. Holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. That is true of you. United by faith to Christ. So consider Jesus. Fix your thoughts on him. The one who is perfectly faithful to God. If you want to be faithful to the end. The next tip comes in chapter 4 verse 1. The author tells us to fear God. Fear God. You know, Christians today have a complicated relationship with this idea of fearing God. On the one hand, we really do believe that because of who Jesus is and what he has done, we can approach God with confidence. We can approach him with comfort. We know him as our gracious father and our just and righteous Lord. But we should also resist the temptation to get too casual in our approach to God. We must remember that his name is to be hallowed. So we want to avoid two bad extremes when it comes to the fear of God. We don't want to shrink away from God in terror. Nor do we want to take his holiness for granted. May we not become glib or irreverent in our relationship with God. Because in doing so, we may undermine our faithfulness to the end. But what other tips does he give us? We see one in chapter 3, verse 13, and then again in verse 15, and again in chapter 4, verse 7. And it's in that one word that he repeats throughout the passage. Today. Now, the author's main idea is that there was another kind of rest. A better rest than what the Israelites would ever experience in the promised land. That rest was great. It was a good gift of God. But there was always something more to look forward to. And Jesus is the one who has made that better rest possible. But that word today can also be of practical help to us in our faithfulness. Namely, take it one day at a time. Don't panic thinking about whether you'll still be holding fast to Christ 50 years from now. Or even 50 weeks from now. You don't know what the future holds. So focus on being faithful to Jesus today. And then do the same thing tomorrow. And the same thing the day after that. Take it one day at a time. And one final tip comes in chapter 4, verse 11. Strive. You know, no one ever said that following Jesus would always be easy. That said, we do have lots of help. The Holy Spirit empowers us to press on. God's inspired word can guide us through seasons of darkness. And God's people, the church, 
lock arms with us as we walk in faithfulness. Chapter 3, verse 13, puts great emphasis on the importance of community and faithfulness to Christ. He says, exhort one another every day in order that you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need each other. Because faithfulness to Christ won't always be easy. It might require blood, sweat, tears, and striving. But it will be worth it. And not only do we have the Spirit in us, and our fellow believers with us, we have Christ who went before us. Jesus led the way in his own life. And he can pull us along as we strive for God's rest throughout our lives. So hold fast in your confidence and boasting in your hope. Don't drop the ball before you reach the goal line. Enter God's rest secured for you by Jesus himself. Fix your thoughts on Christ. Fear God in a healthy way. Take it one day at a time and strive, even when you're tempted to give up. But what other lessons might we learn from this cautionary tale of Israel? What temptations contributed to their falling short at the end? And what temptations might threaten to trip us up? Well, one threat is fear. We said just a minute ago that fear can be good. Yes, it can have two bad extremes. Too much of it can lead to us shrinking away from God in terror, and too little of it can lead us to taking God's holiness for granted. But fear can also be a double-edged sword. In Numbers 13 and 14, the Israelites failed to enter the promised land not because they were fearless, They failed to enter because they feared the wrong thing. They feared the inhabitants of the land more than they feared God. Fear, if it's directed at something other than God, such as what the fallen world might think of us for our faith, that can cause us to drop the ball in our faithfulness. Another threat is discomfort. The Israelites wavered more than once in their faithfulness to God before they ever got to the edge of the promised land. The second they got hungry, the second they got thirsty, they longed to go back to Egypt. When they got tired of the food that God gave them and wanted a bigger menu, they complained. They wavered when they got uncomfortable. Likewise, we can be tempted to waver in our faithfulness when God allows us to get a bit uncomfortable. We can be fair weather followers of Christ. When the sky is blue and the birds chirp, we're faithful. But when storms arise, we fold. Well, again, the author of Hebrews tells us to strive to enter rest. We never get any guarantees that our path to rest will be smooth, straight, and paved. 
Faithfulness won't always be familiar and it won't always be comfortable. But when we not waver. Another threat is internal sin. The author warns us of the hardening effects of sin and how deceitful it can be. Like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, sometimes we buy into Satan's lies that sin can offer us something better than God. In the words of theologian Admiral Akbar, it's a trap. Israel struggled with internal sin in Numbers 12 when Moses' right-hand man Aaron and his sister Miriam conspired against him. Sin within the camp. Pride threatened their arrival to the promised land. Don't miss out on rest because you think sin is better. It's a deception. It's fool's gold. Another threat might be external pressure. As we'll see later in the book of Hebrews, these Christians are being persecuted. That's part of why they're wavering in their faith and why they're receiving this well-intentioned warning. But it doesn't have to be outright persecution. Any form of suffering can make us waver. Health issues, a job loss, financial hardship, broken relationships, they can all leave us feeling unsteady in our faith. But as the Apostle Paul reminds us, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Don't let external pressure discourage you from striving on in faithfulness. Another threat might be doubt or uncertainty. Perhaps the Israelites' most Infamous sin was creating and worshiping the golden calf in Exodus 32. And what spurred that on? Moses had been gone for a while, and they weren't sure what happened to him. We too face doubt and uncertainty. Many in our day and age suggest that, like Moses, God has been gone for a while, and we don't know what happened to him. So we better find something else to do. Better find something else to worship. Better find something else to focus on. May we not fail to enter rest because of unbelief. And the last but not to be underestimated threat is time. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness For a good long while. Numbers 9 and 10 tell us that it took them over two years to make it from the Red Sea to the Promised Land. That's a long time. That's a lot of manna and a lot of quail. And some in our church like camping, but not for that long. As the years pass, you get older. And Jesus doesn't return. It's easy to feel worn out. Doubts, hardships, and hurts pile up. And the weight can feel unbearable. But remember what we said earlier. 
take it one day at a time. Strive to be faithful to Christ today. We read in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. May we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from our hope. May we be counted among the ones who conquer in Revelation 2 and 3. May we finish strong. May we enter rest. We close our Hebrews passage with chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. We often read these verses as some sort of commentary on the power and the authority and the inspiration of Scripture. And that's fine, but in context, it seems to be doing something a little different. Verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. One day we will all stand before God to give account, and his verdict will be true. May we be among those who hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. May we learn from the cautionary tale of the Israelites. May we heed the warning of Hebrews 3 and 4. May we not drop the ball before we reach the end zone. May we be faithful to the end. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus, your spirit, your word, your church. And thank you for passages like Hebrews 3 and 4, which give us a healthy challenge and a healthy reminder to strive on in faithfulness to you. Lord, you give us these warnings not to intimidate us, not to scare us, not to make us second-guess ourselves so much, but rather to gently, lovingly challenge us to keep running the race that you've given us, to strive on in faithfulness to Christ even when it's hard, even when it's unpleasant, even when it's uncomfortable. So, Lord, I pray that by the power of your spirit, with your word to guide us and with our brothers and sisters in Christ, encouraging us and exhorting us and supporting us. I pray that we would rise to that challenge, that we would press on in faithfulness, even when we're tired, even when we're frustrated, even when we're sorrowful. Lord, help us keep the faith. 
And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just focus on our own race, on our own faithfulness, as important as that is, but we would encourage one another. As we read in verse 13, help us exhort one another daily. We need each other to avoid the temptations of sin, the deceits of sin, the hardening effects of sin on our hearts and minds. So, Lord, help us encourage and support and pray and care for each other. And, Lord, I also pray that we would take the rest that you've given us in Christ and extend that invitation to a world that is tired, to a world that is weary and worn out and disappointed. We live in a world that desperately needs rest. So, Lord, I pray that we would point people to the rest that only you can provide. I pray that we'd be faithful in that calling. Again, Lord, help us rise to the occasion and be faithful to you in the end, knowing that what we get in the end is more than worth the striving. We love you. We honor you. We glorify you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.